Behold, thy King Cometh by St. John Vianney. My dear Christians, as we have just learned from today's gospel, the Savior celebrates today his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Many times had the people of the Holy Land, when they were witnesses of his deeds and miracles, tried to bestow upon him extraordinary honors. Several times his enthusiastic admirers went so far as to announce their intention of proclaiming him king, but Jesus had always managed to avoid their intended demonstrations of respect and admiration. This was particularly the case when, in the most miraculous way, he procured in the desert food for a multitude of many thousands of hungry people. But today we see to our astonishment that the Savior himself makes arrangements for a solemn entry into the holy city. And what time did he choose? The time of the Paschal Feast. Every Jew on earth who had the means made it a point to celebrate this feast, the memorial festival of their delivery from Egypt, at the place where stood the Ark of the Covenant, that once led them safely through the river Jordan into the Holy Land. And as the sons of Israel, in spite of their captivity in Assyria and Babylon, in spite of the persecution from the pagans, and in spite of their being scattered all over the earth, remained participating in the blessings of Abraham. They were to be found in Jerusalem at Paschal time by the hundreds of thousands. The enormous multitude of people could see for themselves, on this day on which Jesus had his triumphal entry, that the words of the prophet Zacharias were being fulfilled. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king will come to thee meek. See the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. A true king he entered, not like a conqueror, but meekly like a prince of peace. A true and real king made his entry, and why should we not call him king who had proved his supremacy over nature and man in such an unmistakable manner? The tempest roared upon the sea, the frail boats were in danger of sinking, and their occupants cried out in terror, Lord, save us, we perish. And he arises, calls them of little faith, and commands the wind to abate and the waves to calm down, where sickness, even in its most terrible aspect, seeks and finds its victims, there he stops its progress. He heals the leper, gives sight to the blind, makes the lame to walk, and causes the paralytic to carry home his own bed. Since original sin, the evil spirit had been master over nature and man. Nature does not supply any longer the temporal wants of the rational creatures of God, unless it is forced to it, and it has gone so far that man created in the image of God has become a tool in the hand of the archenemy. But as soon as Satan, the enemy of mankind, perceives the Savior, he is overcome by fear. Though he may try to still practice and hold on to his sovereignty, yet he will have to go, let go of his prey and retire before the king, who is even master of the evil spirits. All this was known before Jesus entered Jerusalem. Thousands of witnesses had announced the miracles he had performed. Then came the rising of Lazarus. Consider, one of the best known and most highly esteemed Jews, a friend and follower of Christ, had died. The Savior was not in time to be present at his friend's last moments. He did not arrive in Bethany, where Lazarus lived, until three days after he had been buried. Martha, the sister of Lazarus, tried to restrain our Lord from viewing the remains, because they had been buried so long and emitted a strong odor of decay. The Savior insisted upon visiting the grave of his friend, and many hundreds of the better class of citizens of Bethany, many of whom had come from Jerusalem, accompanied him. And what is their experience? 
Jesus simply called upon Lazarus to rise from the grave, where he had been entombed for four days. Jesus' master over the decay already set in. He can command nature to interrupt its work, and therefore he must be master over the whole world of creation. The miracle was not to be denied, and many became converted on the spot. The news of this great deed of Jesus Christ spread like lightning, and involuntarily many thousands in Jerusalem asked themselves, Who is he? Who has commanded over death and the grave? He is human, but he must be endowed with divine power. He is surely sent from heaven, and if he says of himself that he is the Messiah, it surely must be so. All those who followed sincerely the promptings of their hearts saw in the approaching Savior the long-promised Messiah, the son of David. For them he was the king, whose coming the prophet had told of, for he had not obtained victory over everything man had been subjected to heretofore, had he not shown himself master over all creatures, over nature, and the evil spirit. A true king, the king of Zion, entered this day into Jerusalem. But he was not like a king like the earthly potentiates are. His triumphal entry was quite different from what the entry of one of the princes of this earth would have been. The prophet says, Thy king cometh to thee meek. We know the triumphal processions of the days of old. The victorious warriors or the leaders of the people appeared in gorgeous, gold-laden chariots or upon fiery steeds. The spoils of victory were borne before them, and they were followed by the vanquished foe, laden with chains and bent with sorrow great treasures, the fruit of victory, were exposed to the gaze of the multitude, and the kings themselves, the ideals of an enthusiastic and pleasure-loving populace, were received with frantic shouting and applause. How did the king of Zion appear? Where are the conquered treasures, the vanquished foe, the chained captives? Where is the gorgeous chariot, the prancing steed? All this is wanting. The king who celebrated his triumphal entry this day was seated upon an ass, which his devoted followers had covered, not with gold-embroidered blankets, but with their outer garments. In this triumphal entry, pride, ambition, and avarice are not represented, but humility, meekness, mortification, and self-denial. In one word, unselfishness. The king who enters Zion has resigned everything temporal. He was born in poverty and remained in poverty all his life. He has earned nothing but the love of those whom he has assisted, and of the noble minds who were able to understand him. He has no friends in the houses of the rich, but all the more in the dwellings of the poor. No adherents among the pleasure-seekers, thousands among the poor, castaways of this world. And these form his following on this day, not upon command, not from idle curiosity, but from love and veneration they stream forth from all sides. As soon as they gain sight of him, the glorious, the godlike, an indescribable cry of jubilation resounds in the air. They show their admiration in their own peculiar way. They break off branches of palms and olive trees and strew them upon his path. They spread their garments before him as a token of their reverence, and they call out joyfully, Hosanna, hail to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in this way, the king of Zion takes possession of his kingdom. What then does the gospel of the today teach us? The Savior enters likewise here in glorious majesty, but at the same time poor and meekly, whenever he approaches us with his grace, in the sacraments of the Holy Eucharist. The Church recalls it when she says before the consecration, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us give him the same reception which his friends gave him in Jerusalem. Let us present to him all we have, and let us spread under his feet 
not only our earthly possessions, but also our worldly ideas and longings, so that the Lord may have a triumphal entry into our hearts. Amen.